0: Stay tuned for The Lynn Show. Today I'm airing an interview with dancer, journalist, advocate, Carrie Siegmund. Carrie has been a full-time staff writer for the New York Times, the Los Angeles Herald Examiner, the Albuquerque Journal and the Albuquerque Tribune, and the Sarasota Herald Tribune, specializing in, in covering the arts and mental health. She started off her life hoping that she would be a dancer. Listen to the sweet story she tells about how she fell in love with dance and bullied her dance teacher into letting her start before the correct age of five. Carrie's story has many ups and downs, many challenges. And the way that Carrie dealt with and emerged from each obstacle thrown in her path is truly inspiring. So
1: hang on. Here come the show. Hearing from inner voice finding choice where there's no choice with gentle prodding from
0: So I interview people who make their living or their life with an art. And in today's interview with Carrie Seedman is particularly fascinating because Carrie is more than one thing. And she discovered her passion, who she is, ongoingly through her life. And she had the courage to go from one thing to another and back and forth. This is a very remarkable and inspiring story which you can hear now from her. So here now is Carrie Seedman. Okay, so I'm here with Carrie Seidman, and I'm explaining to Carrie that I interview people who make their living or their life with an art. Now, it seems to me that the art to which you are giving your life and making your living is the art of writing. Is that correct?
2: It is, but it's sort of perceptive of you to realize there might be an
0: (laughs) underlining
2: uh, there um, because my original career that I had hoped to pursue was as a ballet dancer. Yeah,
0: okay, so I only asked one question, but for you it's going to have to be at least two,
2: okay? It's true. I'm I'm a little bit of a dichotomy that way.
0: You're, you're multi-talented. I,
2: I, that's a good way to look at it.
0: <laughs> okay, so the question I usually ask is, can you remember, can you tell me, the very first time you were drawn to the art of dance? It's probably one of the earliest memories of my life.
2: There are four girls in my family, and my mom enrolled all of the girls in ballet, but you couldn't start ballet until you were five. And so I would go with my older sisters to their ballet class and stand in the corner and crank my legs and desperately wanted to start, and the teacher said no. And um, my sisters actually were not that into ballet. They were taking it because my mom said they had to, but I, from the moment I saw it, knew that I wanted to do that, and knew I was... I was really shy. I didn't like to talk, and I think I saw it as an alternative to talking. I begged and begged, and finally, when I was not quite five, the, the teacher let me start taking uh, class. And really, for From then through high school, that was my dream, was to dance. Did you know it was a career? I certainly knew at some point when I got kind of serious about it, probably around 12.
0: Do you remember a moment when you thought, this is going to be my life, this is what I want to
2: do? I don't remember a moment when I didn't think it was Uh. going to be my life there wasn't anything else that held sway over me like that I didn't spend a whole lot of time thinking I'm going to be a ballet dancer when I grow up that was what it was going to be yeah
0: yeah yeah okay great so you study through high school right are there competitions are there performances there are performances
2: I did so I did perform and um Late in my high school years, I grew up in Grand Rapids, and the Grand Rapids Civic Ballet came into being while I was in high school, and I did um, perform with them, you know, as as an amateur dancer.
0: Do you remember if you
2: liked it? I always loved performing. I was not nervous, uh, which was sort of interesting in that I was this sort of very introverted child, and... um, I wasn't a ham or a show-off or anything like that, but I, I loved performing, and I loved expressing myself without having to talk.
0: Yes, yes.
2: So, um, yeah, I don't really remember um, ever being afraid or particularly nervous. Performances were something that very much... Look forward to because I wasn't performing that much. It was maybe the Nutcracker at Christmas time and maybe one other performance during the year.
0: How How was your family about this? Um, they were, you know, my mom
2: was was an artist and she was very supportive. As with any child who gets serious about a particular art form, the demands start getting heavier as mm. you as you get older, and you know, then it was twice a week classes and then it was three times a week classes and um, until I could drive was kind of difficult. They were supportive. I mean they certainly weren't encouraging in the sense
0: of yes you must do this and or pushy or, or anything. When you were getting out of high school and and thinking about your life what were you thinking about doing and what did you do? Well, that was really
2: a a major turning point because, as I said, I had always thought I would be a dancer, and back then, you didn't go to college if you wanted to be a ballet dancer because ballet is so youth-oriented that you weren't going to waste four years going to college that are prime years to be dancing. And at the time, there were very few ballet programs in any school in the country. and so, of course, I thought that I was going to graduate from high school and go off to New York and see if I could become a ballet dancer. Mm-hmm. And my parents thought that I was quite misguided. My parents expected us to go to college. I think it was all very well-intentioned. And I also had an older sister who had, who had gone to New York and who they felt had sort of fallen into, you know, a bad way and they certainly were not supportive of my not going to college and they were not very supportive of my going to New York. I had been a very acquiescent child to that point and so it was, I don't think that they expected how strongly I felt about it. Um, I I agreed to go to college but um, I got into Barnard was College in New York and a number of other schools and I wanted to go to Barnard and they said, well, we'll pay for you to go to school somewhere else. So I, for the first time in my life, kind of defied them and I worked two jobs this summer before I went and got enough money for my first semester and didn't really know what I was going to do. Clearly
0: you were a shock to them. Were you a surprise to yourself?
2: Yeah, I mean, that was very unlike me yeah. to do that. And part of it was I had a boyfriend in high school uh, from junior high. He was going to school at Harvard in Boston, and he supported me, you know, going to school in New York. I don't think I was still very a very rebellious person. I mean, I did go to college, and I took dance classes while I was at Barnard, but I had pretty much give up the idea of being... A professional dancer.
0: Really? Yeah. Why? Um, Because I just felt
2: like, um, you know, my parents didn't support it. See, I mean, that's the part of me that still wasn't brave enough to kind of defy the world. And I think there was probably a part of me that felt like I wasn't good enough, too. And I don't know if I was good enough. I really don't. By today's standards, I was not good enough. By the standards then, I think I probably could have danced professionally, but not with a big company, probably.
0: Um, Do do you remember the moment when you said, well, maybe no?
2: No, there wasn't a moment.
0: No, it was sort of um, a continuum? Yeah, Yeah. it
2: was just sort of, you know, I went to college, and then you have to major in something in college. So I majored in English Mm -hmm. because I... um, had always been a very avid reader and my boyfriend was an English literature major and we read both read immensely and I was a pretty good writer just naturally um, so that was, I. you know, I mean I looked at other majors and at one point I actually tried to petition to do a romance language major because I had taken uh, Spanish and French and Italian and I loved languages, um, and that wasn't a major and they turned it down, and so I was like, well, I have the most English credits, so I guess I'll be an English major. It wasn't something that thrilled me or excited me necessarily, but it mm-hmm. just seemed like the way to go. So I graduated with an undergraduate degree in English, and my English majors were a dime a dozen. I didn't have a teaching you know, degree, so I couldn't teach without going back to school and um, my boyfriend always wanted to be a writer but we decided we'd apply to the Columbia Journalism School which is just a one-year program to get a master's in journalism and. We both applied and I got in, and he didn't
0: get in. Oh my goodness! Yeah, which (laughs) was another turning
2: point (laughs) uh, because it was sort of the beginning of the end of of us and the beginning of my becoming, you know, a a serious writer. And uh, the funny thing was that, you know, there were only a hundred people in my journalism class, and um, on the first day, they gathered us all together. They gave us a sheet of facts from a story and they said okay you have 30 minutes to write your story figure out what your lead is how you're going to string these facts together to make a story and this is embarrassing to admit but I actually leaned over to the person next to me and said what's a lead (laughs) (laughs) that's how much I didn't know anything about writing journalism I mean I could write a nice long padded English essay, you know, (laughs) English term paper, Um, and I wasn't a bad writer, you know, but I had no idea about journalism at all. So I did this year at Columbia and it was a fascinating year. It's a great school. Um, I was certainly thrown into the fire not knowing what I was doing at all. Where Um, did you live? I lived in, uh, I lived on the Upper West Side. So you an got apartment. an apartment, right? I got an apartment. So what were yeah. your family saying about this now? Now, oh well, I forgot that. I forgot to kind of amend what happened with the whole thing with my parents because somehow, mysteriously, after my first semester at Barnard, in which I got basically straight A's, <laughs> the checks started coming, <laughs> you know, and they they were very proud of you know of uh, my how I did there and. Very proud when I got into Columbia, and mm-hmm. uh, so, yeah.
0: Oh, right, so they, they supported totally
1: it. Right. They were
0: mm-hmm. yeah. They were very happy with it.
2: So I graduated from Columbia. Now I have a master's in journalism, which is a slightly more uh, useful than an English undergraduate degree. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a friend out in Los Angeles who was working for a paper that no longer exists called the Los Angeles Herald Examiner. Which was a Hearst paper, and it had just been through a long, long strike, and they had lost nearly their entire newsroom, and they were—they had a new editor, and they were hiring a bunch of young people right out of school, and so I got on, immediately before I even uh, had graduated, I had a job offer in L.A., so I packed up and moved to L.A. Wow. And I started with the Herald Examiner um, as a sports writer. As a sports writer? And there again, it's the influence of the boyfriend because the boyfriend was a huge sports fan. He was a baseball player, but he was also just a huge, really fanatic sports person. And so, you know, during our college years, we spent a lot of time at you know Fenway Park and we spent a lot of time you know at the Boston Garden and you So know,
0: you knew so. all the ins and outs of the various well, sports I that knew you were covering? A
2: lot. I don't think I knew enough. Once I actually got into writing about it, but uh, you know I'd certainly been exposed to a lot of sports and it was at a time when it sort of I wasn't of the very very first wave of female sports writers but I was pretty close on their heels. And so it had become a time where it was sort of the thing to mm-hmm. have a woman in your sports department. And I was the first sports writer the Herald Examiner had ever had, female sports writer. Um, so it was, it was actually kind of a great opportunity, mm-hmm. you know, because as a woman in sports, I was given much more opportunity than I would have probably in any other area at my age and with my lack of experience. And I was very fortunate in that um, the all-male sports department at that paper, um, who, you know, had never had a woman in the sports department before, were wonderful to me. Really welcoming, really helpful, very, um, very much promoted me, you know. Um, so. It was, it was really a fun time in my life. I was there for three years, and um, I got unheard of opportunities for somebody my age. Of course, it was a time when air travel was very cheap, and journalism was a totally different world than it is today, where they sent people to cover things. So you know, they sent me to England to write a story about a jockey. Um, they sent me to New York to cover the U.S. Open, a tennis tournament, but anyway I was still with the boyfriend and he wanted to go back to New York and so I started applying or sending my stuff to a few papers in New York. Um, You know, not really that keen on leaving, but, but You know, I was still, you know, very much in love with him. And so um, I was actually, when I went back to New York for the Herald-Examiner covering the U.S. Open, I had sent stuff to people in New York, and I was sitting in the press box, and a guy named Neil Ander, who used to cover uh, tennis for the New York Times, who, that press boxes were very different in those days. He had a phone. (laughs) Almost nobody else had a phone, but the New York Times had a phone. And I'm over there typing away, and he said, are you Carrie Seidman? And I said, yes. And he said, my editor wants to talk to you. (laughs) And his editor was the first female sports uh, editor of the New York Times, Leanne Shiver, And she said, "Um, I've got your clips, and uh, are you going to be in New York long enough? Can you come in and talk with me? So, you know, obviously that was <laughs> shocking, and I was all of, I don't know, 24 maybe then. Um, and so I, I did end up going to talk to her, and by the time I went back to L.A., I had a job offer to come back to New York.
0: Oh, my gosh. So
2: I, I went back to New York and I, as a sports writer for the New York Times. Wow. As sort of the low person on the totem pole um, of the sports staff, I was assigned to cover the New Jersey Nets, who were terrible (laughs) then. And not only terrible, but they didn't have their own stadium then. So they played at Rutgers, which was in Piscataway, which is a drive from New York. And so I spent a lot of time in the car driving back and forth to Piscataway, New Jersey. (laughs) And... um, as you can imagine, it was exciting and fun, but it was also really a challenging and really, um, you know, I was really young yeah. and there's a lot of pressure working for the New York Times. And um, there, you know, when you're covering pro basketball, you're on the road, you know, eight months of the year and it's a really, it was even a worse schedule then than it is now because it was like one city one day, another city the next day, and the New York Times had like five editions, so you had to write for every single game you wrote three different stories. You wrote a story before the game for the first edition, which came out before the game started. You wrote what you called a running story, which was a story that you wrote as the game was going on and then put a top on at the end. To make the edition that that uh, ended right about when the game ended, and then you went to the locker room and got quotes and wrote a final story for the final edition. So it was really grueling. I think I wasn't terribly efficient at it, and yeah. I really didn't have enough experience being on the road was hard because, as I said, I was the only woman. And, you know, the guys would go hang out and have a drink afterward or go to dinner or whatever. And I was, you know, I didn't have a kind of that kind of support while I was, you know, traveling. So in some ways it was very exciting, and in some ways it it just still felt like this isn't for me. And this was also during the time when my boyfriend and I were splitting up. I was on a road trip, on a western swing and one of my sisters was getting married in Montana. Um, So I stopped in uh, Bozeman for her wedding and I met a guy at her wedding and um, we stayed in touch after I went back to New York and I eventually decided to leave New York and move out to Montana and it changed my life. I think, in a way, I, I was being driven by trying to figure out who I was. And breaking up with that boyfriend, who I had been with from the age of 13 until 26, was part of, you know, trying to figure out who I was and
0: it was very hard to break up with him and hard to figure out who I was. So now you're in Montana. Did you have a job or you just went I there? I did
2: not have a job. Again, so brave. so brave. There, I still did uh, freelance writing. I ended up marrying the guy that I had, had met in Montana. Not having a real uh, journalism outlet, um, I started getting back into dancing again. And um, I also had my son. My son was born with um, a genetic condition. I did not know this uh, for many, many, many years. He had a lot of issues, physical issues and medical issues as as a child, and I was making the rounds of specialists. Nobody knew what it was. They knew that there were some issues, but nobody could really put their finger on what it was. Anyway, when he was two, and I was trying to figure that out, and and I had just opened my own ballet studio, so it was a lot of stuff going on. And we divorced when um, when my son had just turned three, and um, you know, it was very uh, you know dark part of my life and very challenging. The situation with my son, who was developmentally behind and had a lot of worries and concerns and I'm doing this ballet studio which you know really was me alone that I I had some other teachers who taught for me and I mean I was everything from the administrator to the toilet, toilet <laughs> cleaner <laughs> you know we divorced I stayed in Montana until my son was uh had gone through kindergarten and um was really feeling like I needed more family support. My older sister who I'd always been closest to lives on a ranch that was in New Mexico. So when my son Keaton was seven we moved um, to this very remote cattle ranch, spent uh, two years there. And then um, both because of my son's special needs and um, my need to get more work, we ended up moving to Albuquerque, and I started working for one of the newspapers in in Albuquerque and, you know, was able to put him in a public school where he could get the special services he needed. When he was three, I took him to a world-renowned genetic specialist. And he uh, gave him a very thorough examination, said, I really don't know what this is, and just raise him as normally as you can, and I don't foresee this ever. It was just a quirk. I don't know what it is. Um, and so I took that advice to heart, and my son was mainstreamed all the way through school. He did have significant learning challenges, and as he got older, he had significant social challenges. But when I moved to Albuquerque, I was working three quarter time and being mom, you know, the rest of the time and dealing with a lot of his needs. So I worked for the paper, my son went um, to school, and uh, that was my life. I mean, so I was in Albuquerque actually almost 20 years. Um, I worked for, for that paper um, for a long time, and then I actually got into ballroom dancing and I. I uh, quit working for the paper for a while and was teaching dance again and teaching ballet. and That's why I say I bounce back and forth between yeah. these two careers. And then I went to work for uh, the second paper in Albuquerque, the Albuquerque Tribune, which doesn't exist anymore, sadly. Um, but I got my son you know, through high school and it wasn't easy. And at the same time, the newspaper I'm working for is dying. Long story short, the newspaper bites the dust. I don't have a job anymore. There isn't really an option for me to get another journalism job there. I start looking for another job. I'm offered a job here in Sarasota, and I decide to take it.
0: I understand that you are experiencing yet another change in your life?
2: It has been a significant change in my life in the last month. Um, as you know, I made the decision to leave the Sarasota Herald Tribune um, on December 1st of last year, 2020. Um, after much thought and deliberation, it was not an easy decision to come to. Um, I had. Uh, been with the paper for 10 years and serving as the lead metro columnist for the past 3 years and over the course of the 10 years that I was with the paper it changed hands and ownership 3 times
1: wow
2: and recently merged with Gannett to become part of Gannett's you know nationwide network of publications, and each of those ownership changes altered the paper in multiple ways. Each change caused a reduction in staff to some degree. Each change caused a change in uh, the newsroom leadership and management, and each change caused a, a little bit of um, different direction and emphasis on what the paper was looking for. And uh, over the past year, it had become increasingly evident to me that perhaps I was no longer a good fit for the paper. Um, I was really happy with what I had tried to do uh, with the Metro column. I, was pleased with the substance of the issues that I'd been able to address and the range of topics. Um, I was pleased with the wonderful audience that I had been able to retain, but most of that audience was older readers. Um, Most of it was readers who still read the newspaper in print. And um, the entire direction of the paper is toward younger readership and online-only models. And it became increasingly clear that my style of writing, my choice of topics in line with um, the paper's emphasis on the online problem, product and trying to drive more eyes to the website and get more clicks on stories. Um, So they wanted stories that were shorter and less substantial and uh, more I don't know what word you want to say. Uh, enticing, racy, you know, controversial. you know my whole goal with the column from the beginning had been to try to bring the community more together and make the community more aware of all all of its disparate parts. And uh, so my my goal was always to kind of tamp down the um, divisions that really, apparently wasn't a good draw for online readership. So there was there was increasing friction along those lines, there were changes in um, the newspaper model itself, that were hard for me to accept um, as kind of an old school journalist who has certain old school ethics. Um, There's a lot of uh, blurring of the line between editorial and news content these days. There's a lot of blurring of the line between advertising and news content. And it just was made pretty clear to me that maybe it was time for me to move on. And I did so reluctantly because I really loved my readers. I had built such a nice relationship Um, with my readers, many of whom I corresponded with on a regular basis. And I didn't, at the time that I left, have plans to initiate another local project or blog or anything like that. And so I was reluctant to let go of and and let down my loyal readers. Um, But I ultimately felt it was better to make the decision myself than, than to wait. Um, to have them make the decision for me Mm -hmm. and uh, and so as I said December 1st um, I left the paper didn't really have a concrete idea of what I was going to work on other than some book projects so you know I've been working for daily newspapers for more than 40 years so it's (laughs) a it's definitely a radical change to my life and my lifestyle. I never thought of it as retiring. I I never had any intention to stop writing. It was more the leap from Working for a daily newspaper, which I'd been doing for 40 some years and having someone else direct what I'm writing and tell me when it was due and and so forth to to being entirely self motivated in terms of what I worked on and when I worked on it and what my priorities were. So it was a bit a leap into the unknown, but I, I certainly never um, n- despite what some people have been told, <laughs> um, I did not leave the paper because I wanted to retire and stop writing.
0: You had such a structured life. You knew that you were going to have to produce a certain amount of work by a certain amount of time, and that was the nothing I thought you were leaping into the lack of structure, and you've had a life really that in many ways has been structured the dance was structured the you know everything so this is um, this is a courageous move it seems to me earlier in the interview you talked about wanting to write for yourself so you have an opportunity now right right and that was
2: exactly um you know, what convinced me that this was the right time to do that. Um, As many people know, I've had some pretty serious health issues in my past, which are all in remission right now. I've had cancer twice. But I think once that has happened to you, you always have an awareness that you may not have forever. And there are things that I want to write um, while I'm still able to. And so, yeah, I gave myself permission for the first time in my writing career to put my own priorities first.
0: So what form is this
1: going to take?
2: Well, so originally when I left, I thought, well, I'm just going to work on. I have a couple of book projects um, that have um, I had started working on the past and just didn't have time with the demands of the column to to work on them. So all of those projects are at various uh, points in the work. And I really did not intend um, to continue to be writing on local issues or to create a blog or something like that. Before the pandemic, I used to speak in person to local community groups. So I had continued to do that through Zoom. So I had made two commitments to do that in December. Um, and both of those Zoom presentations had a, over a hundred people on them, all local, many of them, my former readers. And everyone uh, was begging me to continue in some way having a, a local platform. So I, I, I wasn't opposed to it, but I was worried it would feel like it, that would take over so much that I wouldn't be able to still work on my, on my other projects. So I investigated a couple different platforms. Um, I ended up choosing a platform called Substack. It's basically a newsletter format. It's super simple to use. And so I actually just launched that uh, four days ago. And um, within the first day, I had over 500 people signed up for it. And one of the things that I told myself when I launched it was that, okay, I'm not going to feel pressured to write every day or, or write only about Sarasota local issues. I, I'm gonna use this to write about whatever I want to write about and whenever I want to write about it. That's part of the the joy and the privilege of finally being my own boss. I launched it, I think, on t- Monday or Tuesday. I wrote a welcome post in the three days, four days since and I've written three other posts, which I didn't really intend, but I had things that I felt like writing about, and it and it's just it's it's very different than writing the column. I feel much freer to write about different issues, to write about um, in different formats. It's more informal. Um, Today, I wrote about how I've become obsessed with collecting uh, shells on the beach over the during the pandemic. So, you know, that's not something I probably would have written in the newspaper, but um, I'm having fun with it. And that's my hope and my goal is that I can continue to have fun with it and that other people who, who are reading along are having fun reading it.
0: Say how people can sign up.
2: Sure. Um, so uh, the the address of the website is my name, Carrie Seidman, and you have to make sure it's spelled right. C-A-R-R-I-E-S-E-I-D-M-A-N. So it's just Carrie Seidman and it's free. So you just go to that address and you can look at all the archives of the post. And if you want, you can sign up with just giving your email address and then you'll be notified every time a new post comes out.
0: Every time Carrie thinks of something else she wants to write.
2: I complained a lot about having to turn out three columns a week. Now I've just written three posts in the last three days. Um, so i guess i must be having fun you know in in preparation for talking to you today i was thinking back to our our interview in the past and how i told you that i think i told you like every time i made a change i didn't i didn't really think about it you know deeply and i never made the change feeling certain that it was the right thing and i was gonna succeed and um, that's still true now. It's like I don't know if this newsletter is going to take off. I don't know if it's uh, going to be a great success, but I'm not as afraid of trying as as I once was. I realize that you know I may try this and it may buzz along for a little while, and then it may just kind of peter out, and that's okay. I don't have to see that as a failure on my part. I can just see it as You know, well, I tried that and, um, you know, it didn't didn't uh, pan out into something um, that was long term. But, you know, I have so many other ideas and projects and things that I want to write about that. um, It's just lovely to have the freedom right now to kind of put my attention and my muse toward, you know, whatever I feel like. But, you know, I may try this and it may buzz along for a little while and then it may just kind of peter out and that's OK. I don't have to see that as a failure on my part. I can just see it as, you know, well, I tried that and, um, you know, it didn't didn't uh, pan out into something um, that was long term. but. You know, I have so many other ideas and projects and things that I want to write about that um, it's just lovely to have the freedom right now to kind of put my attention and my
0: muse toward, you know, whatever I feel like. I really think that that statement that says one can trust one's instinct, one can trust what feels right, and take the risk and that for me being able to do that is the success that you don't stay mired in something that no longer feels good because you're too afraid that something else won't be some whatever you think it might have to be the ability to do that is success yeah i i agree
2: and i I must say that I don't think it's something that I could have done in my younger years. I, I was much more fearful. I found that's even true in my writing and how I write. I take a lot more chances with my writing now in terms of, uh, you know, how I write or, um, you know, the perspective I use or even the style I use. Um, I'm, I'm much more comfortable with with taking a risk and taking a chance. And I think when I was younger, I was much more fearful that if I did that, there was going to be some kind of backlash or some kind of failure or whatever. And it's interesting, someone posted something on um, social media saying, if you could tell your younger self one thing, one bit of advice, what would it be? And for me, it it would have been stop letting fear get in your way. You don't don't be afraid. Don't be so afraid, um, because I was always afraid of failure or afraid of disapproval or um, afraid of the unknown. Um, and I, I think that's one of the privileges of getting older, that you feel much more liberated to, to be yourself and do what you're motivated to do and not being so held back by fear.
0: It's a perfect place to stop. Thank you so much, Karen. Sure.